Morning, First Press. I'm really glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. My name's Eric Hansen, one of the pastors here on this uh, second Sunday of Lent. We're about 11 or ish days into this journey. Let me just ask you, um, how goes your Lent intent? How's it going? Can I just uh, confess to you, I have failed. Now what? Is Lent over for me? Does that mean I'm done? Nope. Friends, same advice when it comes to these spiritual disciplines and practices that we pick up in Lent as we have when we're seeking to read the New Testaments together. Don't catch up. Just live into whatever it is that God has for you today. Okay? That's true of reading the scriptures. It's true of a prayer practice. It's true of um, eating three desserts last night. Whatever it is. All right? Just start over from scratch today. So today we're uh, going to talk about this uh, next part of Matthew 13. But before we do that, let's pray and then we'll dive in together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tugging on hearts and minds and literal bodies to be in this place here right now. In your sovereignty and care, you have pulled us into this place. Would you now show us why? We've been singing your praises and we've been um, lifting up our hearts and minds to you in prayer. And now, Lord, as we uh, come to this moment, even as we continue to worship, would we also receive something from you? Would you word, teach us and instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us, train us, prompt us, move us? As a gift from your spirit, Lord, would your word do only what you can do? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be truly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, in light of um, the passages that we're looking at over the next several weeks, I, I thought I'd start with this really sort of fun, light disastrous story about gardening, because I have a lot of them. But then Friday came, and I just wondered, how could I start with a joke? Fifty-plus people have uh, died in a massacre in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. And it begs a question, actually. What is God doing where is God in these moments of absolute evil and sheer terror? How are we supposed to understand these things that we read about in the news? You may or may not know this, but that question is ages old. Where is God? If God is good, why is there evil? If God is loving in his sovereignty, why does evil exist and sometimes seem to win? How can it be that we have this history of the medieval crusades right alongside the hope and grace and gentleness of the gospel? 
How could German Lutherans defend and approve of Adolf Hitler in the years leading up to World War II? Why is there such a history of church complicity with racism and slavery? Why are there serial killers, sex offenders, cheats, swindlers? Why is there me? My motives, my thoughts, my actions. In moments like these, we say that we, we want evil rooted out immediately. Right now. But can I just say to you, as we get started, I actually suspect that we don't. Consider what it would mean if God were to restrain, judge, and correct evil before it ever actually even happened. It's, it's not that God would only do that out there to those people. He would also do it in here, to these people, to me. See, I don't think we actually want God to restrain every sort of evil right now. Instead, what we see both in the Scriptures and in our actual lives is this sort of um, restraint where we get to exercise some human freedom. That somehow there's some sort of work of God's in His sovereignty. The scale of justice is such that somehow we can't understand it, but there is simultaneously freedom and grace. And today's passage helps us understand that just a, a little bit more. We are on um, the second parable of Matthew 13. And in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five sort of chunks of, of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospel. And this, this is the third one. Matthew chapter 13 is the third chunk. It's organizationally the third, the middle, but also thematically, this seems to be maybe at the core. God is um, wanting us to know that this is what the kingdom is like. There are two parables about some fields. We're about to have the second. There are two parables of these hidden treasures underground. There are these, there's a, a parable of a net. There are two parables about seeds. And here's what I want us to know as we get into this question about what's going on with the evil of our world. Something is happening underground. Things are not only as they seem. The Father is at work somehow. Last week we looked at this parable of the sower that sometimes people call the parable of the soils. And what we see is God sort of scattering his, uh, the hope of the gospel far and wide in every place. And, and what we discovered is it actually turns out it kind of looks like failure. Just in the face of it, if he, if he um, scatters a hundred seeds, only 25% remain rocky soil, hard-packed soil, thorn-choked soil. Only 25% remain on good soil. In the middle of that failure, the parable reminds us that, that from that failure, God will bring, at a minimum, a 30-time yield from 25 seeds, friends. We will 
receive, or the kingdom will receive, 750. Today's parable comes right after this, and it actually seems to ask the question, what, well, what happens to the good field? Let's just put focus just for a second a little bit more on what happens on that square of land that has like, had the seed spread on it where it's landed on good soil. That's where we are today in Matthew 13. Starting in verse 24, and this is one of those parables, which doesn't happen very often, but where Jesus actually then goes on to describe uh, its meaning to us. And so we'll read that right after this too, okay? Jesus told them a, another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and they said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Thank you. Then he left the crowd and uh, went into the house. His disciples came to him and they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, Well, the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Turns out, even the good field, even the one that's going to bring the harvest, is going to have flaws in it. It's going to have weeds. Did you think you'd come into a community that was perfect? Do you sometimes look at the church and wish you weren't part of it? The gospel's always been clear, friends. The field is going to be a complicated mess, and there's going to be weeds in it. Frustrating, toxic, hideous, life-killing, back-breaking, soil-sucking, competitive, good-for-nothing, harvest-destroying, Weeds. I hate them. 
And Jesus says in the middle of that, whoever has ears, let them hear. Don't miss what's being said in this short little parable about what it's going to be like to be part of the the kingdom of God, to be part of the world where the seed has been sown. There's probably lots to talk about, but there's really just three or four things I want to draw to our attention today. As we seek to have ears together and maybe see something new that we can sort of be planted in God's Word in a fresh way. The first thing I want you to know simply is this. God's kingdom is opposed. This is not some sort of just sort of random playtime. This is not a thing where it turns out where it's just actually hard to be a gardener or a farmer. I think it's extraordinarily hard. I, my thumb is probably black. It's not just hard, it's actually opposed. There's opposition. What it is that God wants to do with his people, with his creation, through the hope of Jesus Christ, actually faces an enemy. And it's not an enemy we see. It's not actually um, an enemy that's on the scene at all. Did you notice that? All we see is the, the results of the enemy's work. And this can be hard for us to hear because our current thought world doesn't doesn't really leave much room for a devil, does it? When was the last time in a conversation with someone you confessed that you actually believe in a devil? If someone were to ask you, I'm guessing most of us say, well, yeah, things are evil. No, is there a personal, vile, evil destroyer? And what's interesting is Jesus himself, over and over and over again, is clear that he faces real personal opposition. This is not just sort of a vague sort of idea of hardship. This is evil. And one of the things that we would do well to hear, actually, is, is to hear, actually, there is a devil that opposes us. But that's hard for us, isn't it? Dale Bruner, who wrote a really amazing commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he wrote this. He said, Our contemporary churches, places just like this, ignore the devil and leave serious references concerning the devil to revivalists and snake-handling cults. If there's a devil, we sort of, it's like, resides over with the crazy people. This is not a good idea. The ignored devil sneaks in by back doors. The devil does not cease to exist because we say so, friends. He only reappears in more subtle forms. You face, we face, as part of God's kingdom, real, personal opposition. Can I tell you something? The devil loves our sophistication about this. The devil loves how much we want to say, well, no, not really. Life is just hard. 
Because here's what I want you to know. An intellectually denied devil, the one that we sort of say doesn't actually, can't quite actually exist, is way more dangerous than the Christ-conquered devil we have in the Scriptures. The denied devil is much more dangerous to us than the Christ-conquered devil that we see here. The devil, friends, is real, but marginal. The the devil actually is serious, but not ultimate. The devil is chained and ravenous. And we do well to take the words of Jesus Christ seriously. That devil seeks to sow that which is dangerous, evil, vile, schemy, right into your community and even into the lives of our individual hearts. Things are not only as they seem, friends, but they are also as they seem. The world is hard and it's evil. The devil is real, and we would do well to listen to Jesus. We would do well to fight. Jesus goes on to tell this story, and one of the things that he uh, says when they say, should we, should we pick, should we, should we weed? Should we pull these weeds? Jesus goes on to tell, no, actually... There's a time that's coming at the end of the age when they will be gathered up and they'll be bundled together and they'll burn. Which is, friends, the next thing I want to point out to you. I think when it comes to judgment, as we think about it, it's probably a good idea for us to change our tone. Change your tone as you think about the future judgment. God says it's coming. And in the midst of that, in the middle of that, where we wait in a place that's struggle and fierce and there's fighting. But I think a lot of times, just like the devil, we actually, we see images like this right here. And we turn the judgment into a caricature. A thing we can say, well, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. That is uh, by Hieronymus Bosch, which is an awesome name to say. If I was going to have a second name, I would name him Hieronymus. But images like this make it easy for us to sort of push away the reality of what Jesus says is going to come. We sort of think about this and we look at this like, that doesn't seem at all like the God that I, that I know and love and follow. So that can't be true. And we turn, therefore, we turn God and we hear the anger and we, we say, God must be like this sadistic, angry, bitter God. Or alternatively, we're like, well, if there actually is a judgment, there's either no judgment, because that's too brutal, or if there is a judgment, he's just going to kind of hang out until all, even the weeds become wheat. Everyone's going to kind of come in and there's not going to be any sort of actual judgment or or clarity about what evil is at all. Sort of like this, you know, 
self, you know, indulgent, sort of toothless grandparent that just sort of waits for it all to wash out with apologies to the grandparents in the room. But what Jesus wants us to see and to know, actually, he was like, we probably should hear a different kind of a tone about what he's saying about the judgment. What's he saying about the end of days? Friends, I hope that what you actually hear is clarity, truth, grace, sadness. When you read this passage, can you, can you change your tone of what you hear? This is not a, tri- a triumphant moment for Jesus as he talks about this, but it's truthful. God's going to confront and destroy the evil. As God shares this, he's, he's not angry. He's gentle. What if, as we thought about the direction that God is headed, we, we allowed to sort of hear actually the, the gentle and final concern that God has for his creation? What if instead of sort of a, an angry, pretend, cartoon kind of a judgment that we can't even possibly imagine, instead, what, what if we heard the, the gentle calling of the Father to come back? What if we heard the, the clear resolve to name evil for what it is, to confront it, to conquer it, to defeat it, to finally sweep it away and burn it? What if our picture of what hell is, is what if we change the tone? It might very well be really hot. That seems to be a pretty consistent image of what the Scriptures say about hell itself. But whatever it stands for, we've called it hell for a long time. This is what we know for sure. Jesus says that a life can be ruined and destroyed forever. You who have ears, listen well. It is possible for a life to be ruined and to be destroyed forever. And what if instead you heard sort of angry, triumphant judgment? Instead, what you actually heard was the deep sadness of what Jesus loses when someone decides to go there. What if we sort of changed our tone? The next thing he says, which I think is really challenging to us, in the middle of this story, should we, should we, should we confront this? Should we fight this head on? Should we seek to pull out these weeds? Here's what he says. Actually, if you have ears to hear, no. Be patient. Wait. Here's what's going to happen. If you seek to, to pull out the weeds, you're going you're to pull out some of the wheat. If you've ever had a garden, even a little front yard flower garden, you know this is true. Especially early on, right? You have all these plants, you sort of all see all these little slivers of green, you're like, I can't tell if that's a plant or a weed. 
Did I do that on purpose, or is that just sort of like get sown and I did nothing to do with it? We can do what I do. It's like, I'll just do them all. But someone told me, and this is theologically really rich, if you pull them up, the only thing that comes back is the weeds. If you pull it all up, the only thing that comes back is the weeds. Instead, Jesus says, no, we're going to wait. Be patient. What he's saying to the church is, yes, I know that as we go through this season of waiting, as we stand between this kingdom and the kingdom to come, and as they overlap, there's going to be evil in the world. And I am simultaneously at work and waiting. And so should you. I am simultaneously doing things and also waiting for the end of the age. When I was in college, I went to Washington State University. Go Cougs. It was this tiny little farming town and surrounded by dozens and dozens of miles on every side are wheat fields. And at the end of every school year, at the beginning of the next, you would drive by and I'd see all these beautiful rolling hills of wheat. It was exquisite. If you're from the Midwest, I can't even describe to you how beautiful farms can look. I'm just saying. And as I was driving, I would almost always notice these, these weeds that kind of had propped up and, caught and sort of raised up, even sometimes even higher than the weed itself. I'd be like, couldn't they just take care of that? Why is there this patch of weeds with all this other wheat around? I, it was actually literally frustrating to me. I, I would have like, this seems like a couple. What if I just pulled them? What if I stopped them? It's like, you know, 10,000 acres of wheat. Here's what I want you to know. As much as I, and I think the Lord, actually really hates sloppy farming, as much as he um, hates that, you know what he hates more? He hates more the idea that he would pluck the wheat too early and end up doing any damage to the weeds. He hates even more the idea that he will tackle that wheat and destroy a single soul in the work of it. And so in a way, with a kind of a sovereignty that we can't actually understand, God says, I'm willing to live with the, wheat for the, for the, with the weeds for the sake of the wheat. I'm willing to let this unfold. I'm willing to wait so that the full harvest, every single one that's intended to come to me, has the opportunity. What God is doing with his creation is what he's been doing with us. I've said to you many, many times that the salvation story is learning how to become what we already are in Jesus Christ. When you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. And the rest of your life is invested in learning how to reflect what is true about you as that new creation. You are forgiven and free. And in the middle of that, although you're free, there now still lingers evil. And we must learn how to root it out, push it out, 
Let it die a death that there might be a greater harvest in us. And what God is doing in, in me and with you and with us, I believe he happens to be doing with all of creation. There is this moment where the seeds have been sown and the wheat is growing and around it still are these weeds. But friends, do not be discouraged. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not be distraught to the point of losing your faith. God knows he is simultaneously at work, and he waits. Be patient. Finally, one last little thing. What if we feed the wheat? Jesus is really clear. We are not to... Um, pluck out the weeds. But what if we just focus on feeding the wheat? The first house that uh, Amy and I were in got to take care of a little yard, and it was disastrous. Before we got there, in the backyard had this little, st- you know, about actually the size of this stage of grass, and there were like weeds and fungus and crabgrass and and um, this is what we did. We realized, someone wisely realized, that if we um, tried to apply some sort of poison or even root out the wheat or the weeds, there wouldn't be anything left. So this is what we did instead. We aerated, fertilized, and overseeded. Aerated, fertilized, and overseeded. What if, friends, we actually decided to confront the evil around us by overseeding with the hope of the gospel? What if we actually took what the gifts that we actually have as God's people and decided to invest in propagating more of the hope of the gospel, not the violence of confrontation? You see, the idea is eventually over time, the, the seeds, they, they choke out, they push out the weeds that are um, in the soil. This is, I think, sometimes the danger when we just read one Bible verse and don't think about it in the context of the rest. Because it might look, according to this one, this one parable that Jesus tells, that all we do is we sort of just stand there and sway in the wind until he comes back. That's not very fun. In fact, I'm kind of getting dizzy. Instead, we have to combine that with what Jesus says about other places where there's evil. Because there is evil right here in this room. In here, in this heart. And Jesus doesn't simply say, uh, or the scriptures don't simply say elsewhere, just keep on swaying back and forth, I got it. Instead, he says this in James chapter 4 as an example. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist. Not attack, pluck, destroy. Resist. Take the goodness of what is true about us in and through Jesus Christ. Submit ourselves to him and let the, di- the devil get pushed out. Overseed, friends. 
overseed, aerate, water, fertilize, overseed. And eventually the evil around us and in us gets choked out. Now we have a long ways to go. Can we just be clear about that? So just being vaguely nicer to your neighbor is probably not going to cut it. Those who have ears, hear. There is real evil. God is not caught by surprise. And there's something we can do. We can overseed with the gift of what God has already given to us. Both personally and corporately. One of the things that I have always loved about Jesus is how much he knows how evil we are. We don't follow a God. We don't um, adhere to a scripture that sort of is pretend about the evil that's out there. Oh, it's all fine. It's, you know, just self-empty and suffering's not real. The gospel is very clear. There is evil. There is suffering. And sometimes it'll even look like the church is filled with hypocrisy as it learns how to deal with its own weeds. But in the middle of that, Jesus says, I know. I know. Be patient. I've got this. Overseed until that time. God is calling for, without saying it directly, is a greater sense of boldness and trust in Him. So as I end today, can I just pray for that boldness for you? Can I pray that you would go deeper in trust over Him? Can I pray that your roots would grow so deep and so thick that, that no weed will strangle it out? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this parable, this word picture that helps us understand the problem of evil. And as we're all here gathered today, Lord, we pray that you would protect us from being choked out by weeds. And instead, Lord, would you reverse that? That by your grace and the strength of your spirit, you would lead us to oversee that which is around us with the hope and purity and graciousness and kindness of the gospel. Lord, what we're calling for is what we believe you're calling us for, greater boldness, deeper truth. Lord, would you give us that? Greater boldness, deeper truth and trust. Fill us, we pray, in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.